And so it's not just a simple sort of self-actualization thing. It's that there is, there's a difference between the kind of reality that's imparted by someone else's relationship to you and the kind of reality that comes after that, that is kind of coming out of your self. Hello, everyone. This is High Low with Emrata. Today, I have on a very special guest, Andrea Long Chu. Andrea is a critic at New York Magazine, but she's a writer. Some have credited her with launching the second wave of trans studies. She wrote multiple pieces about her transition, one entitled On Liking Women, another one, My Vagina Won't Make Me Happy for the New York Times. She's published a book called Females that I highly recommend. She also writes incredible critiques on various writers, and um, I just can't recommend her writing enough. We actually met because she was tasked with profiling me around the book, and I was terrified because Andrea can be quite cutting in her profiles. Um, Luckily, I liked it, and we actually have become friends. Honestly, even if I hadn't liked it, I probably still would have been a huge fan. So I'm really excited to have her on. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea Long Chu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Welcome to High Low with Emrata, Andrea Longchu. Well, thank you so much for having me. I texted you and I was like, hey, really want you to come on the podcast. And you were like, yeah, I've been waiting for this text. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just figured, you know. Which I loved. I was like, she, she's correct. That's right. There's so much I want to talk to you about today. But you just said to me right before we started recording that you don't read. Yeah. But I feel like you, all you do is read because you're writing so much criticism. I mean, this is the thing, right? Is that like texting and social media means that like we are all writing all of the time. I don't know, I talked to some of my girlfriends about this who are straight women on the apps. And part of the problem is that like the first way that you meet someone on the apps is you find out whether they're a good writer or not. Ooh. And most people are not. And that's like fine, but it's also true. And so it's actually I'm just thinking about how many cis hetero men are going to hear that and shake in their boots <laughs> because everyone is afraid of writing. I think a lot of people are, but it's really true. Even just can you capture tone? Yeah, I remember having a conversation a couple of years ago with a woman who had worked, I think, at the Review of Books, the New York Review of Books for many years, I think as a copy editor. And she was saying that she hated texting. I mean, she's, uh, you know, just of a different generation. But she was saying she hated it because, like, you know, she wanted to, she hated, like, not using periods. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to explain, like, it's not that it's bad grammar in text. It's that, like, 
the bubble, mm-hmm. the text bubble is a piece of punctuation. Yes. And you have to learn to use that piece of punctuation. I really love that. So I used to be somebody who, and especially now that I'm dating as a single person, I'm like not sure if I should do this, but I love sending multiple texts, like mm. question, and then you send the question, and then you send yes. a thought, like I did that today to you. But then you send like six text messages, which could, can totally. be seen as overwhelming to somebody who you're not texting regularly. But that's how I text. I use the individual text bubbles as punctuation. That's what I do too. And mm-hmm. and sometimes you like wait to see if there's a dot, dot, dot before you hit them with another. No, it's... Yeah. it's or I get frustrated because they don't know I'm going to send multiple. So then they interrupt my cadence. That is a red flag, <laughs> actually. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I've had lots of conversations about texting on the apps <laughs> in the past year of my life, I think. And people sort of don't understand what the point of that is like what is actually happening when you're texting someone on the app right you are not like having a conversation or like a discussion or you're not even getting to know each other mm-hmm. you're just trying to determine whether you're going to meet up yes right? i've thought about this a lot because sometimes i just want to skip it <laughs> <laughs> well i think and so this is why i think you have to just be i think you have to be aggressive mm-hmm. and I didn't expect expect us to start with dating advice, but I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy that we are. <laughs> well, this is my my friend Sarah, who's a, a writer, also says that refers to this as my flirtation seminar. I didn't know that you came with material <laughs> already prepped. Well, it's 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 sort of related to the like everyone is writing, but a lot of people don't know how to write. I mean, and it is a writing question, right? It's like trying to understand the reader. As a critic, I think about this, right? That I don't really have, you know, you don't have access to the person you're writing to. You don't have any control over the circumstances in which they read it. Mm -hmm. The only thing you know about them is that they are reading right now, Mm -hmm. right? The moment you're writing the sentence, that is when they are reading. And so you have to make a lot of assumptions. And the trick is like figuring out which assumptions to Mm -hmm. make. When it comes to flirting, I think the problem is that people think that flirting is about trying to make someone like you, Mm. and it is not. Okay. (laughs) Flirting. This is so you, by the way. (laughs) She goes to the root of the the way that somebody is thinking about something and is, well, actually, everything that you're doing is wrong. (laughs) All of the little minutiae that you're dealing with actually completely, you're not, you're in the, you're on the wrong planet. Look, this is, I think this is my job as a critic is to have strong opinions, even if they're wrong. Part of the problem with forming an opinion is that there's you're surrounded by a lot of weak ones. Mm-hmm. It's helpful to have something to knock your head against, totally. even if you don't agree. That being said, I am right. No, go. Um, I was and... just going to say, go back to, so what? what is the purpose of flirting? Or the, what is the objective? The, per- the objective of flirting is to allow the person that you are talking to to express their attraction to you. You're I trying could to, cry. <laughs> I could cry. You're just giving someone the opportunity mm-hmm. to show that they like you because it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to be the one to like put yourself out there. And be vulnerable. And be vulnerable. So what you're doing is you want to give the other person an opportunity to be vulnerable, which means that you just have to assume for the sake of flirting, not out of like megalomania mm-hmm. you have to assume that they like you right so if they don't like you there's no uh, you shouldn't be te- texting in right. general and you'll yeah. figure that out and that's fine mm-hmm. but like it's not going to help you 
Something I've noticed with flirting via text specifically with a lot of straight men is that they they just want attention. So they actually don't put in the work of they they hold the assumption that you think that they want you and that that they like you. And so then they give you nothing to work with except small talk. And then it becomes boring quickly and not exciting. And then it's not flirting. And also I find myself doing the heavy lifting and also being too nice essentially because I'm trying to communicate that I like them, but they're not giving me that back. And so then it's just not sexy basically. Exactly. You know, I like there's a problem with like compliments, Mm -hmm. right? People will send on the apps, you're cute, you're hot, mm-hmm. right? As like opening right. salvos. And I think a lot of a lot of women, not just straight women, and then probably just also more generally, people have the urge to respond to that as if it were a compliment. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> oh, you too. Right. And <laughs> like it's, blushing and face. It's so yeah. So unsexy mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. Kills it. It totally kills it. But it What's feels the like, proper response? Yes. Period. <laughs> yeah. Like, I am. Mm-hmm. Thank, yeah. thank you. Thank but right, not that kind of thank you. Well, you're correct. Well, I would just, I think if I was being Rico Suave, I would just respond with a, like a point about something else. Just ignore it. Ignore it. Maybe I'd double tap it with a heart. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, this is in the DMs. That's like a like, hmm. It's like, more, right. Noted. Exactly. And now we can proceed. Right. It's this more actually, coy. okay, not to bring flirting, but... <laughs> So much of what you write about is desire. And it's interesting talking about flirting and texting and desire because a lot of what you talk about with gender and desire is something you said once is gender is the expression of someone else's sexuality, which I really liked. And you're so constantly aware of desire and how we want to present ourselves in the world, not just by through our sexual preferences and like what we are fantasizing about, but also about how we want to be seen in the world, even with our thoughts and ideas and politics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's this moment in sort of the, this is going to be reductive, but there's a moment in kind of the history of feminist thought where you say, okay, women are being fashioned in terms of what men want. And this is sort of obvious, right? This is easily proven in a sense. And so the response is to then say, okay, we're going to claim our desires, what we want, be the kind of women that we want to be, etc. And that has reached a kind of stalemate. I mean, it, it never got that far probably, right? But like this kind of like sex in the city, low grade feminism mm-hmm. of, I mean, what is, I think the first episode of the pilot of sex in the city, I think Samantha says, we have to have sex like men. Mm-hmm. And like there is there's some value to that, but it it doesn't change the fact that like all of these women continued to be women. Mm-hmm. And like there was meaning in that. Right. Not to sound like tradwife about it, but it just remains the case that like no one actually wants to live in the live in a world in which the desires of other people are not being incorporated as part of who you are. Mm-hmm. It's just like the fact of Well, it's sort of impossible, right? It is. I mean, this is something that comes up a lot because a lot of my guests who are come on are kind of into that TikTok feminism of you've got to be in your feminine energy. You've got a, the male gaze versus the female gaze. And now we have to present ourselves a certain way based on 
our understanding of what male desires are. But I'm like, how do you ever remove male desire from the equation? I'm asking directly, how do you remove desire? And how can you parse apart how you want to present yourself from the conditioning and even your, you know, your own desires of being desired, right? How can you take that apart completely? There's, there, it's impossible, right? Yeah, and it's, it's not clear to me that that's what any of them actually want either, mm-hmm. right? Like you the, call bullshit. Well, the dirty little secret is that like everyone still likes men, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Pew did a survey. It, now it's like kind of old, I think, but in the twenty teens, of like sexual preference broken down among LGBT people was basically 50-50 gay and lesbian and of the, or not gay and lesbian, 50-50 queer men and queer women. Mm-hmm. Of the queer men, two thirds of them were gay mm-hmm. and one third were bi. Of the queer women, two thirds of them were bi and one third was lesbians. You add that to the, to just straight people. And what it means is that actually a small but significant majority of people are attracted to men. Mm-hmm. Like not half right. the majority of people are. Whoa. And that makes sense because Why? patriarchy, right? right? Like, I mean, because it's it's like the world that we live in. I want to talk about this, what, this study specifically in reference to your book, which is basically entitled Females. And the whole concept is that everyone's female and everyone hates it cheekily. <laughs> I think we can say, but that's the premise. And so it's interesting, like, how does that fit with that kind of within those confines of the book and that that idea? I mean, that is it was intended as a kind of tendentious claim mm-hmm. in the book. And the the meaning of it was not that everyone is a woman, but that everyone kind of occupies like the psychic space that in the history of the concept of sexuality has been filled by the woman, right? You know, Freud says, what does woman want? There, there's a... Yeah, the void the, is what you write right, about. There's that void. And like self-awareness, basically, right? That's a part of it too. Right, right, right. Self-consciousness. Yeah. But like in, in a, as it were, like bad kind of self-consciousness, not mm-hmm. like self-realization. Yes, not self-awareness in an enlightened way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And Freud says... There is only one libido and it is male, by which he meant that it's always active because he was kind of always blurring male and active and female and passive, whatever. And the book is kind of saying, yes, there is only one libido, but it is female. That kind of like receptivity is more fundamental. Mm -hmm. Not that people aren't also sexually aggressive or active or tops or whatever, Mm -hmm. masculine, you know, all of these things still exist. It's just that they are all different ways of trying to deal with the fact that you are kind of essentially compromised by by what you think other people want and by what they actually want. And so in the case of all these TikTok girlies, right, I'm trying not to be unfair, but at a certain point, like if you want to sleep with men, you want to be with a man, you want to have like a life partner who's a man, that is more than a choice. Not that you're being forced to do it, but that that is partly constitutive of who you are. Mm-hmm. And that, that might cause cognitive dissonance because it doesn't match what you feel like politically should be the case. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's a lot of value in sort of being in denial about it. But don't you think it's sort of the attempt to move forward and recognize the the divide and maybe potentially shift your desires based on an understanding of what shapes them? We didn't end up with nearly as many lesbians as they thought we would. 
Right. We're working on I am personally working on <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I see you out there. But it's a it's 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 hard because it's not it's not clear that that is actually what people want, you mm-hmm. know. And so I don't know, in a sense I would rather more frankness about the reality now. You know, well, we still care what men think. That's definitely true. Yeah, and to an and to the extent that that is true, it's also worth just kind of like naming men, mm-hmm. right? All of the many years ago, there was like a debate on Twitter about whether or not straight women can call their boyfriends their partners. Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember this. I mean, it was it was, it was like dumb. It was like kind of a joke because people like introduce like somebody as their partner and you think it's going to be something, some totally. queer relationship and then it's just a hetero basic. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I remember tweeting, I think we can all agree that like you can call your boyfriend your partner and also we can make fun of you for doing that. Like both those things can be true. Mm. And more recently, you know, as there was like a day a couple of weeks ago when everyone thought Twitter was about to like go down yes. because of because of Elon. And so I was and everyone was sort of posting their like drafts, you know, as the Titanic went down. And I was like, I just posted essentially the same or I think I said, actually, now that we're here, like they should just say boyfriend. <laughs> and it got it was honestly shit posting and I don't even shit post anymore. Hmm. I'm not you know, I, I'm kind of like retired, kind of out of the game. But it, so it was just like a dumb shit post, and it got when I like checked back on it later, it had gotten all of this, not not a huge amount, but there were still people who were angry about it. Mm. And I was like, "What do you think I'm trying to erase?" What were they angry about? I really don't know. I think somehow it's like maybe being perceived as like biphobic or something. Oh right. Or I don't know. Just also straight people who are. You're clearly reacting out of a place of embarrassment and shame. Mm-hmm. Like on the one hand, I think that I have sort of carte blanche to make fun of you mm-hmm. for like being straight, being with a man, whatever. I think mm-hmm. we all have to acknowledge that in some way. Right. But also, why are you gonna, so ashamed? If you're gonna do the thing, just do the right. fucking thing. Right. Like, stay tuned for more high low with Emrata. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Again, this goes back to sort of the way you, you know, when you write about other writers and you critique in general, you often, you talk about their identity, (laughs) which really, (laughs) some people really don't like. They think it's like playing dirty, but it's so theoretically, like it's, it makes so much sense with the way you think about what we talked about before about belief systems and the way how everything is about how we want to present ourselves and how we want to feel about ourselves. And those are the beliefs we have. So how could you essentially not talk about people's identities when you write about their writing, right? And their work? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had a colleague of mine describe some of my pieces as literary profiles, which I thought was like sort of Right, that like I am often, I go and read a lot of interviews, the informal rubric for some of these pieces, and we're trying not to just just do this kind of piece, you know? Yeah. But the informal rubric. They are wildly popular, though. Well, yeah. Some would call them takedowns. <laughs> just for the listeners some, who, um, yeah, not not me either. Although there's something so refreshingly 
asshole-y about them. You just don't. <laughs> You're just like, I don't play by the rules, which is why they're fun to read. Well, you know. They're kind of flirty, actually. They are kind of flirty. I appreciate that very much. I mean, I think in general I am pretty flirty. You started the Otessa one off with talking about shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, which, as we know, all know is very hot. It's it's like you want to get to know the person in a way. And like that requires like a kind of intimacy, even if it's just with a version of her in my head. You know, our, our informal rubric is that I write about people who have deals, like people where you're like, what is her deal? And I, I mean, you and... went on her Depop, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she totally. has one. No, I know. Totally. Right? I just like... remember like you did a deep dive. You went to the Depop and you were like, what's her deal? She's selling vintage clothes on Depop. It feels important to know this. To me, it's not. There's no kind of like separate domain of like, I don't I don't think you get that as a writer to just have, well, here's your books over here. And then the shit that you talk in interviews doesn't count. On the one hand, I am very interested in just, I think I'm sort of like formalist. Like I do, I am like really interested in what a book actually does. Mm -hmm. But what it does is is also things in the world, right? Like you write a book because you're trying to get through a feeling or you write a book, like these are real things. And we usually, you know, it's the kind of thing we might talk about when the mics are off. Mm -hmm. Well, one book is informed by their other books, which is informed by their identity and who they are. Like, it's impossible to just write about that book, right? Also, I think just as a, because I do do these deep dives, which is partly just, I think, the kind of ex-grad student in me. But when you read a lot of someone's work all at the same time, it's very hard not to have a sense of them. I'm smiling because I've, I've done that with you. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I totally relate. Well, it's sort of something kind of like emerges. And then you find also, you know, the the Hanya Yanagihara piece that I wrote like a year ago. I was doing my deep dive, you know, and found out that she had done this thing called the Grand Tour of Asia. And we couldn't find it online. Like the links were broken. <laughs> and so I called Condé Nast Traveler and was like, do you have a back issue of this 2000 whatever thing? And they looked and they had one copy. And so they sent it to me. And then I like was leafing through it and found that she had repurposed a paragraph from, from this like grand tour of Asia into a little life or a novel, which on the one hand is like, okay, fine. Like we all sort of reuse material i'm reusing material sure right now but it's so hard to see something like that mm -hmm. and not be like there's obviously just like a person you don't disappear into the ether well, when you the become fact an that author she chose to reuse that says something about her and about her work as well the other thing i think that's really important to note about this is that you don't separate your identity from your work and you would never expect anyone to do that at one point maybe too much that way right like when we i was texting you and i was like what do you want to talk about and you know there's several of the kind of like pieces that kind of put you on the map and in my card says launched the second wave of trans studies <laughs> <laughs> then n plus one essay and then the new york times piece which are so personal as somebody who's written memoir and really personal shit i i actually think you have me beat but you were talking about sort of wanting to stop doing that so much yeah, you know, I wrote that piece on liking women for N plus one. It came out in January of 2018, I think. And I mean, everything sort of changed. You know, I had been like a grad student 
in theory was supposed to be working on my dissertation. So I was out of coursework. Like that's what was supposed to be happening. Mm -hmm. And instead I wrote this piece because it's like I knew someone who knew someone. And and I was really unprepared. Like I really didn't think that a lot of people were going to read it. And, and it was, it was super personal. It's, it's, it's certainly the most personal thing that I'd written up until that point. I mean, I had just written academic articles. This piece is so strong because you're talking about not being able to separate liking women and wanting to be them, which is, I mean, it's really, I talk about a really interesting aspect of desire in general. Yeah, you know, I think there were just like things that I, that I was like trying to work through mm -hmm. and frustrations that I had and kind of like shadow boxing in my head with other ideas and, you know, ultimately use the piece to try and think about those things. And and the truth is that, and this is not the fault of trans people, but the truth is that there is, it was kind of like an empty space, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, like there's just not that many, in, in 2018 that was the case. And, and still now I would say that's the case. We have a lot more trans people in like a kind of influencer space, mm -hmm. activist space, but still, you know, people writing, especially nonfiction, right? I mean, nonfiction, that isn't memoir, right? Mm -hmm. There's like still memoirs. There have always been the memoirs since whatever, the 70s. But so, you know, there, it was sort of like a space that like was largely unclaimed. <clears throat> and when you just, well, how would you describe that space? I mean, I, what I think you're saying is that people were having very specific and limited, limited conversations around being trans but to me, that's just a response because you have to be radical and sort of very specific about trans identity because there's the whole world is against you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's what Sandy meant that that quote, which mm -hmm. it, it gets used a lot launching the second wave of trans studies or whatever. It's literally like something that Sandy Stone wrote on her Facebook and not like some sort of grand pronouncement. Well, you just had a new way of talking and thinking about being trans that you are allowed to say. Well, and I think the gambit was, it was new in the sense that it wasn't being said, but not in the sense that I was the only one experiencing yes. it, you know, in a sense that piece was like reaching for an audience that it hoped was there. And I mean, and I did get those emails, you know, and I still get those emails sometimes. Which emails? So emails like this describes how I feel, you know, that kind of thing. I have also, I do occasionally get emails from people who have transitioned after reading my work. That's amazing. I, you also have gotten like a lot of angry emails, right? I do get angry emails. From people, from trans people. From trans people, from queer people. Like occasionally, you know, I get turfs sometimes. Yeah. In a sense, this whole thing is already played out, right? Because it's, it's like, we've seen this happen with other minority groups that are moving into a cultural space. It's like, what do we talk about with each other versus what do we talk about with everyone else? So after the New York Times piece came out, this was an op-ed that was basically like, you know, I don't know that my bottom surgery is going to improve anything in terms of like how I feel. Mm -hmm. It's so honest, that essay, it's the like yearning and the inability to solve that yearning and, and the suffering is so palpable in that essay. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of, in this case, I actually, I don't know why I didn't expect the kind of negative criticism that it got, but I didn't. And so then it came out and, and people some of this is just the ebb and flow of Twitter, right? That like the right the right kind of blue checks were like this is bad. And so the other blue checks didn't 
post about it or whatever. You know? Right. But I got people saying, oh, like studies show that people are, you know, 95% of people who get, you know, gender affirming surgery, like report, you know, a better outcome afterwards, or this isn't the kind of like you're giving ammo to TERFs or whatever. I'm like, TERFs don't need ammo. They don't live on this planet, you know, like they'll be fine. Well, also more than anything, it's a really scary thought to think that any free thinking or like expressing your experience would just be that you cannot express it because it's just going to be used as ammunition against you. That's so limiting. That's not great for the world in general, right? Yeah. And it is, it is the enemy in a sense of, I don't think I would have put it this way at the time, but when I think about it, that kind of like representational burden Mm. is just like the enemy of like writing, right? Mm. In a sense, what I was actually saying was like, I want to write. Yeah. Like I want to be allowed to write. And that means not in like a red pilled way of like, you can't, you know, you can't say anything anymore. Like what? Not, not like that, but in the sense of there is no point in my writing anything in a world where this thought is not expressible because like that is a different kind of dehumanization to be like required to represent things all of the time. I just, I just had this piece come out, which I think also is a little under the radar, but about Octavia Butler science fiction writer who, you know, for most of her career was like the only, almost the only black woman working in SF. And it, there's a an adaptation of Kindred, one of her novels coming out, or maybe has just come out. And so we were doing this little packet for the magazine. And the, what that piece is about is that there were many of her stories people wanted to, readers would be like, well, this is about slavery. And on the one hand, she did write a lot of things about people in like really sort of coercive situations. It's like sort of legitimate in ways, Mm. but it's also, I mean, she literally said in an interview, I think a lot of people think, she's talking about a specific story. I think a lot of people think this story is about slavery just because I'm black. That's like very true. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily coming from a place of quote unquote racism, Right. right? Like it's also coming from a desire on the part of a, community for like art to like have a political function Mm -hmm. you're going to be like advancing our goals Mm -hmm. you're going to be like contributing towards liberation in some way and it was not what she was interested in or what she wanted like she cared about that on a social level but in terms of the kind of art that she wanted to make it was you know she was kind of interested in these other moments where actually you had to sort of negotiate a situation it wasn't just like master slave it was like a negotiation between someone who had more power and someone who had less Mm -hmm. that allowed for other kinds of intimacy i mean we're talking about powerful aliens and little people who are overwhelmed by you know these like very truly uncomfortable things to read about Mm -hmm. that are usual usually also very sexual and that is really cool to me Mm -hmm. that she managed to be really, you know, one of the only people in her field and still hang on to her own project. Right. I don't know why you wrote this piece in this moment, but maybe why you're interested in her and this, her experience and the way people talked about her work is because you're interested in trying to separate yourself from your work a little bit more. I think that's true. I think that is true. I don't have a problem with my work being read in terms of who I am, I think. I mean, I don't know that there have been that many attempts to like read me the way that 
certainly not the way that I am reading mm-hmm. people when I do well, these pieces. Well, not that many people are reading people like that in general. <laughs> Sorry to be said. I said to you, I was like, where? who's going to write the, the banger profile? I don't know. On Andrea Long, too. Yeah, I mean, I sadly am not available. <laughs> <laughs> it would be kind of cool if you read a takedown of yourself. Not a takedown. Uh, you know, an inquiry. I have. I've toyed with it for... I mean, it's the definition of masturbatory, but... Exactly. Um, yeah. it's, it's truly could be like really too much, but... What more I'm interested in is just, okay, I'm very lucky. Even though I was writing it about being trans in like a different way and a new way that was like really exciting to people, I was still writing about being trans. Mm -hmm. And like that was still kind of what, you know, that's why the literally the Times, whoever the opinion editor that I had was, was like, I think we saw on social media that you're going to have surgery soon because I was posting everything at that time in my life. And so, like, in a sense, it's not like they forced me to do it. Like, obviously, I made a decision to do it. But, like, but they, they pitched it. They were, they were sort of taking advantage of, of like, how I was feeling. And, and like, it's that kind of thing that I'm like, okay, like, I don't need to do that anymore. Like, I can do it when I want to do it. Mm-hmm. This was actually a conversation that changed the direction of a piece this past year. Hmm. I wrote this piece about the Velveteen Rabbit, like, the kid's story about the boy who gets a stuffed rabbit for Christmas and initially he doesn't play with him. The rabbit learns that you can become real if a child loves you and the boy does play with him and he feels like he's real. And then he gets thrown away because the kid gets sick. And so the doctor's, oh, the the rabbit has germs. And so he gets thrown away and he sits on the trash heap outside of the house and, and thinks, what was the point? What was the point of becoming real? if it was just going to lead to this. And he cries a tear and out of the tear comes a flower and out of the flower comes a fairy and the fairy says, I've come and I'm going to make you real. And the rabbit says the saddest thing in the history of all children's literature. He says, I thought I already was real. And she says, you were real to the boy. Now I'm going to make you real to everyone. I talk about this in the piece, but the brilliance of the book is that you become real twice. And so it's not just a simple sort of self-actualization thing it's that there is there's a difference between the kind of reality that's imparted by someone else's relationship to you and the kind of reality that comes after that that is kind of coming out of your self it's just a really wise and beautiful book i love that piece thank you it's you know that's it's very different from a lot of other stuff that i've done it was the the reason i had that interest in the velveteen rabbit was because it had come up in therapy the whole becoming real and like all of that was sort of related to transition stuff and that was really interesting to me personally and I, and i pitched it that way and then wrote the piece and had or was working on the piece and did all this research about her and mm-hmm. found you know got all these old books, you know, from the 20s and 30s and really went in. And she was really interesting to me. And I was like, I kind of want this to be like what the piece is about. And I wrote a draft that, you know, it was like 7,000 words long and it it had so much about her Mm. and a kind of close read of the text. And my editor was like, well, I kind of think that you need to put the stuff about you in it. And I was like, I really don't want to do that. And there was kind of like a stalemate. Hmm. And so we just shelved it and we did a Tessa Mashveg and and then we came back to it a couple months ago. And what I think we both sort of realized is that even though I had not wanted to put myself in it, I had written a version of the piece that sort of would only make sense if I were in it. Mm -hmm. So I think she was right to say, 
you need it feels that. like you need to be in it. And so instead, we kind of reworked. We were like, okay, it needs to not, like, actually, if it's not going to be about that, we have to figure out what it actually is about. Mm-hmm. And so the focus kind of changed. And it ended up being the piece that it is. And I really like it. Mm-hmm. I still am like, someone should option this. Like, this is this is the, I want to do a Finding Neverland for Marjorie Williams, Bianca. But it's, you know, there's a part of it that is like about me and it's not really in the piece. And I'm really glad that I like kind of held my ground and we like thought about it. And then we like so came to a... Are you doing that because you want to protect yourself or what, why, why are you glad you did that? Some of it is self-protection. And then some of it I think is that like, I'm not that interesting to myself anymore. Mm-hmm. And I am like trying to really value being less interesting to myself. Well, this kind of goes back to the Octavia Butler thing, right? Like she wrote about things that interested her probably because she was black, like dynamics that sure informed what she was thinking about and informed her experience. But the work was so good on its own that she didn't want to be like, this is why I'm writing about these things. And that's almost what you want as a trans person and as a writer. You're like, I, yes. I am interested in the Velveteen Rabbit because I'm interested in the whole concept of being real and transformation. But I don't want people to like this piece or respect it because I am because of my identity. Exactly. There's a line in the Octavia Butler piece that's obviously it is like meaningful that Octavia Butler was like a black woman writing in science fiction at a time when there were almost no black women writing in science fiction. But we should not confuse this for a specifically literary accomplishment Mm -hmm. as opposed to a social one. That is not of literary value, not because quote unquote being black is not of literary value or being trans or whatever, but because like the the whole point of getting there Mm -hmm. is to be able, is to have the freedom to pursue the things that you want to. And you're right. Like they, of course they come from who you are. Yeah. And, and so, of course, it's yeah. so. Of course, her work is informed by that. Of course, my work is informed by that. But the point is the work. Yeah, it's so funny you say this because one of my good friends, Z-Way, came on the show and she was talking about that Toni Morrison quote where she where she says the most annoying part of race about racism or about being black. I can't remember which one she says specifically. Is that it wastes people's time? Mm. And she's because you have to like work so hard to even be in that space that, but you also have to be as good or better than everyone. And I'm just thinking about that in terms of Octavia Butler and like how she would want to be perceived as a writer because she was just that fucking good, not because of her identity. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. I think it's really interesting when I think about your your work personally and like how you are thinking about how you are in this moment dealing with having put yourself so front and center to exposure and not totally being able to separate it being impossible to separate that privately, but then making a choice for your output to be maybe something else. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky now to just be able to like write about kind of things that are interesting or things that we, 
you know, some of the things we do, I pitch and some of them, my editor pitches. And for me, the thing that's sort of programmatic about those things is not content, but is that like, I just have my own interest in what is the point of criticism. Mm -hmm. So I try to kind of work that out in, in most of these pieces and it is happening it's sort of being embodied and then I'm sort of more explicit about it, I think at the margins. But for me, I don't know, it's it's almost like an old fashioned thing. And I kind of like that a lot that I'm just trying to be like, okay, I'm like lucky enough that I have this little perch at a magazine, at a print magazine somehow. And <laughs> they, they just want me to like have strong opinions to the tune of four to 5,000 words, like every two months mm-hmm. about something. And I'm really interested in the value of that and how to do it well. What do you think the point of criticism is? One of the points is to, I said, I think I said before that it's about having a strong opinion. I mm-hmm. mean, in a sense that all, that is all that it is, is just saying, I'm going to have an opinion. Mm-hmm. It's also about showing someone how to have an opinion. Because mm. I think there is a kind of educative element to it. More, speaking more formally, I would say it's an exercise in judgment. So like there is preference, I'm paraphrasing Kant, but I'm not gonna put you through it. There is preference, which is, I like the way this tastes, I like the way that looks, right? I think one thing, you think another thing, we have nothing to say to each other, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's just, this is what I like, that's what you like, that's fine. But then we go see a movie and I like it and you don't. Now we could have a conversation about it. I would, and then I would try and give you reasons for why I liked it. You'd try and give me reasons for why you didn't or vice versa, whatever. And then we would sort of be expressing opinions. We'd be like getting closer, but fundamentally we're still dealing with the fact that we've both just had kind of like subjective reactions to a thing. Mm -hmm. And we might even leave the conversation feeling, did she even watch the same movie I watched, right? right?" And so there's a kind of mild thread of derealization of like, uh, how how can I be sure that I'm seeing the same thing you're seeing, Mm -hmm. right? The paradox of judgment is that it is subjective, but universal. I say, I think this is good, but that is also true for everyone. Mm -hmm. And the trick is how to like actually pull this off. I don't exactly know the answer for how to do that, but but it feels like it should exist, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like we should be able to come to consensus on whether the movie is good. Mm -hmm. And so we do talk about it. And what I can do as a critic is try and give you not just a strong opinion, but, and this is where sort of the flirting things, flirting thing kind of comes back in. I try and write, not like I am telling you my opinion, but like I am telling you your opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, and the what I like about your writing so much is it feels like a thought process, which is why it's flirty. It's basically back, we're back to the text bubbles. <laughs> Weirdly, we went on a journey from Kant to text bubbles, but I do actually think that it, it is, right? Because it's that's what's really good about your writing and even your sentence structure, in my opinion, is that it feels like you're in front of me and I can feel the way your mind is working through the writing. I want to feel like we're both having the thought at the same time, yes. right? So that you can experience the thought as a, not just as an abstract idea, but as a, as an act. Yeah. Right. And so... I think part of what that means is like not talking down, 
Mm-hmm. Just assuming that whoever reads is is adequate to the task of reading it. You really hate writers who talk down, or even I really do. And it's interesting because I'm such a such an arrogant person. Well, I just think you think it's bad writing. <laughs> I think it's bad writing. Yeah. Exactly. I think it is lazy. Well, that's one of the things you don't like about Atessa. I mean, is like you that, that there's this god feeling of I'm going, I'm letting you into my mind, and like you, mere mortal. Whereas you like the idea of being like, come along with me on this thought process. And you think it's much more effective and also, yeah, it's it's definitely less arrogant. I mean, <laughs> yeah. To me, it is the kind of good arrogance, right? Like, well, yeah, It's. I was just going to say, it's actually harder to do as well. I mean, what it is is topping, mm. right? Like it's, it's- Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's being forceful, right? And creating a situation but a, a situation in which the reader gets to experience themselves as a thoughtful, interesting person. There's like an act of service in there, but it also requires a degree of aggression and taking control that frees the reader to have a certain kind of experience. And, and that is basically how topping works on a psychic level anyway. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much. I hope we do this again. I could talk to you forever about many things, and I'm happy that you are on the perch you are on. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, that was Andrea Longchu. I personally, as you can probably tell, love the way that Andrea's brain works. If you want to read some of her writing, we referenced a bunch of different pieces. A lot of the older stuff is on N plus one, but a lot of the new stuff, the Octavia Butler piece, the one on um, the Velveteen Rabbit, the Otessa Moishif piece, they're all on New York Magazine. So go check that out. Check out her Twitter. I'm looking forward to hearing from all of you weighing in about Andrea's hot takes. I think the way she thinks about things is super interesting and really specific to her. So go to hilo.fm to submit your thoughts and to join the conversation with Andrea and have a wonderful holiday season. High Low with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment, Bitch Era Media, and Something Else production produced by Chelsea Jacobson. Our executive producers are me, Emily Radikowski, and Sarita Wesley. Our senior producer is Medina Parwana, and our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik, with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh. Thanks for listening.